Good morning. My name is Sarah Basehart and my pronouns are she, her, and hers. I am a member of your Board of Trustees and it's my pleasure to welcome you to worship at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. As we begin, we honor the Piscataway people and their ancestors. It is upon their land that we in Columbia reside. We are served by the Reverend Paige Getty, minister, as well as the talented and dedicated team of religious educators, musicians, and other professional staff. I want to express my gratitude to all within our community who are striving to keep us connected and to provide meaningful worship services during this unusual and trying time. Whoever you are, wherever you are from, whoever you love, and whatever your faith tradition, you are welcome here. We particularly welcome any guests who are watching this service. We hope that you will join us in the future when we return to worship at the Owen Brown Interfaith Center so that we will have a chance to meet and welcome you in person. A few announcements this morning. In case you missed it, the Regathering Task Force has created a Regathering Plan, which was endorsed by the board at their July meeting. Click the link in the chat to view the announcement and the plan. Thank you to the task force for laying out a plan that leads us toward in-person gatherings again. Members of the UUCC community who are working in healthcare are invited to join today's healthcare workers support group from 12 to 1 p.m. Today's gathering will be hosted by UUCC members, Cindy and Bernie, as Reverend Page is out on summer break. If you plan to join the group today, please see the chat for more information. The Board of Trustees has an open at-large seat to fill for one year. Per the bylaws, the Board is responsible for filling the open position. We would like to invite anyone who's interested in submitting their name for consideration to email us at board at uucolumbia.net by this coming Friday, July 23rd. Please note, that you must be a member of the congregation to serve on the board. We have an exciting year ahead. Please consider joining us. I'm honored to be serving as the worship associate this morning. And I wanna remind everyone that there's a downloadable order of service on our website if you would like to follow along. Also, please send any joys and sorrows to joysandsorrows at uucolumbia.net. If you're attending services for the first time, or if you haven't had a chance yet, please complete our visitor's form. The link is in the chat. And our call to worship this morning was written by Katie Romano Griffin. Come let us enter this space of hope and community. Come let us enter this space with our sorrows, our joys, our passion and compassion. Come let us enter this space with the stories of our ancestors, for their strength and wisdom beats in our hearts. Come into this space, present to the beloved companions who move beside us. Come into this space, mindful that together we are building a future for other generations. Come into this space and let us worship.
Hello, um, today I'm here to do the chalice lighting and I'm here to read you a poem and it's named Aloud. It was written by Dana Waltz. There's no control in life. Try corralling a lightning bolt, containing a tornado, dam a stream, and it will create a new channel. Resist and the tide will sweep you off your feet. The only safety lies in letting it all in. The wild and the weak, fear, fantasies, failures, and success. When loss rips off the doors of your heart or sadness veils your vision with despair, practice becomes simply bearing the truth. In the choice to let go of your known way of being, the whole world is revealed to your eyes. And now let's light the chalice. Thank you. Please join me in singing hymn number 360. Here we have gathered. we give we 
I now invite you to join me in reading our congregational covenant. Strengthened by our common humanity and inspired by our seven principles, we promise to be a safe and welcoming community, to nurture each other's hearts and spirits, to delight in the beauty of our diversity, to struggle together on our spiritual journeys, and to challenge each other to live our values. Thus, we pledge our time and vigor to the continuing celebration of spirit, of the world, and of humankind. And now we'll all be unmuted for a few moments so that we can say hello and greet each other. Good morning, Nice to see everybody. Hello. Good morning, What the world needs from liberal religion is clarity about who we are and what matters to us. Even with all our diversity, there are certain core beliefs we share. We believe that the human venture is inextricably, inextricably dependent on integrity of the rest of the community of living things, and therefore we are called to serve the planetary purposes upon which life depends. That the moral impulse that weaves its way through our lives, luring us to the practice of justice and compassion is threaded through through the universe itself, and it is this universal longing that finds outlet in our best moments. That our location with the community of living things places upon us inescapable responsibilities to seek not our welfare alone, but the welfare of the whole community. Good morning. My name is Kelly Daniker. My pronouns are she, her, and hers, and it is my joy to serve as the Religious Education Assistant at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Columbia. I am particularly excited to be with you this morning, as many of you will be introduced to the knowledgeable and insightful Kathy Parker for the very first time. As an actor in my past life, I spent a significant amount of time being a tree. Now, the idea of being a tree can perhaps seem a bit silly, but this morning I'm hoping to change your mind. And so I'm going to ask you to find a comfortable position. You can feel free to be seated. You can stand up if that feels good to you, whatever is comfortable. And I'm going to ask you to close your eyes wherever you are and turn your attention to your feet. And I want you to imagine that you have roots growing very, very deeply into the center of the earth. Connect your roots to the deep center of the earth. 
feel how deep your roots grow. As you're imagining your deep, deep roots, take a few deep breaths. Breathe slowly in through your nose and out through your mouth. And now that your roots are deeply planted, pay attention to the body that is the trunk of the tree. Does it feel strong and solid? What happens if you imagine some wind right now, a strong wind? When the wind comes, does your body feel strong? If you feel like the wind can still push your body around, then add a bigger root system to your feet. Imagine that you have many roots holding you firmly to the ground. Feel how great it feels to be strongly connected to the earth. And now I want you to just hold that position that you have and open your eyes slowly when you're ready. If you look around on the screen, you're gonna see many other trees. And you're gonna see that together, we have created a forest with our roots deeply planted in the earth. About two decades ago, ecologist Suzanne Samar discovered that trees communicate with each other through their roots. They are secretly talking and trading right under our feet. They do this using a network of fungi that grow around and inside of their roots. The fungi provide the tree with nutrients and receive sugar in return. By plugging into this fungi network, trees can share resources with one another. The system has been nicknamed the Wood Wide Web. It's thought that older trees, known as mother trees, use this network to provide sugar to shaded seedlings. Trees that are sick and dying will often dump their resources into the network, which might then help healthier neighbors to thrive. Plants also use this to send messages to each other. If a plant is attacked, it can release chemical signals through their roots to warn the other trees to raise their defenses. The hidden root network creates a thriving community between individuals. So this morning, we're going to dig into the beautiful, sometimes complicated, Unitarian Universalist roots that connect us all. We're going to deepen our understanding of our faith tradition so that we can better nurture our faith community, better share our resources, and strengthen our connection with each other. We're going to dig in to better understand our roots so that our network, our community, might thrive. Happy Sunday, UCC. Thank you, Kelly. Now is the time in the service where we ask you to share your gifts. First, we're going to hear from Chase Farmer with this month's Generosity Minute. Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Chase, he, him. I've recently made a membership pledge to UCC, and I'd like to tell you why I chose to support this community. I've been attending UCC for about two years now, and over that time, I've witnessed the great work that this congregation does. Um, we support a variety of nonprofits, be it hungry, 
and creates social events for people of all ages. In addition, this sermon has really guided me through uh, confusing and stressful times in my life. I want these amazing things to continue and grow, so I've dedicated time and money to them. If you feel the same, or if you feel like this congregation has helped you in some way, consider donating or making a pledge or getting involved. Thanks. Thank you, Chase. While we listen to some music, I invite you to be generous with your financial contributions and the sharing of your abundance. Please use the instructions for donating that will show in the chat box um, or text CHALICE to 73256 to contribute on your phone. You can also visit our website, uucolumbia.net backslash giving. I have the pleasure of introducing Kathy Parker this morning. Kathy has been a member of UUCC since March of 2020. Before that, she was a member of the First Unitarian Church of Pittsburgh for 20 years. She is a historian and has authored two books on UU history and, and has served as the editor of the Journal of Unitarian Universalist History since 2009. She wants to note that in the order of service, there is a bibliographical, there are bibliographical sources for this morning's service in case you choose to look those up. I'll turn things over to Kathy. Good morning, everyone. Uh, today I will say a bit about our UU history. Can, can't say much more than a bit because I have 20 minutes. In the hope that this will plant some seeds for a UU history course, which we will offer in the fall. My interest in our history was inspired when I studied the records of the First Unitarian Church of Pittsburgh. I thought at the time, wow, this is a story that needs to be told. Six years later, that story was published. And since then, our UU history has become a central part of my life's work. What stands out for me and our tradition 
is the ongoing connection between our evolving theologies and our ethical commitments of conscience. These connections between theology and service will be my focus today. Now, I was asked when I first came to UUCC, so what is the difference between Arius and Servetus? So let's begin there. In 325 CE at the Council of Nicaea, Arius of Alexandria opposed the Trinitarian doctrine enunciated by the bishops of Rome called together by Emperor Constantine. According to this doctrine, Jesus was deemed of one substance with God in a way that made him co-eternal with God. Those who objected suffered banishment or worse. For centuries, to be anti-Trinitarian, i.e. holding to a broader, more open view of Christian belief, was to be guilty of the heresy of Arianism. Now, fast forward a little bit. In the midst of the Protestant Reformation some 1,200 years later, Michael Servetus claimed that the Trinitarian view of Jesus was an error a view that got him burned at the stake over a slow fire in the court of John Calvin in Geneva in 1553. Bear in mind, both the Catholics and the Protestants were after Servetus. A couple of decades later, the first organized Unitarian congregation emerged in Transylvania. It's still there, by the way, we're in, we work with them where a verse from Psalm 2 was used to defend Unitarian thinking. And Ferenc David argued, you need not think alike to love alike. David was the author of De Falsa et Vera, the false and true knowledge of the one true God, places us in an ethical faith, in other words, how we live our lives, instead of following a rigid belief system. An affirmation of Unitarian belief was made more definite in America in 1819 when William Ellery Channing journeyed from Boston to Baltimore, where he affirmed the Unitarian view of Christianity, which New England liberals had up till that time repudiated as too radical. Channing continued to believe that divine revelation came from the Bible but he also argued that a divine spark was present in every human being and should be nurtured through study and learning and the arts. The problem for the poor and for slaves, he said, was that they had no opportunity for self-culture. In Boston's Federal Street Church, where he ministered for 30 years, he ran the Wednesday Evening Association, which founded, beginning in 1828, a multi-church ministry to the poor, which today still running as the UU Urban Ministry of Boston. Now, on the most pressing issue of his day, slavery, Channing believed, as others of his class and race in the North, that slavery would eventually simply end. Then he read a small book written by a popular Unitarian writer Lydia Maria Francis Child, an appeal 
in favor of that class of Americans called African, published in 1833. This was a time when abolition was pretty much despised everywhere. And Child lost most of her readership with the release of this book. She went on to write for the American Anti-Slavery Society. And she made an impression on Channing. He was moved to produce his own book, Slavery, in 1835, in which he argued that slavery denied the divine potential of humanity in the enslaved and corrupted the slave owner as well. John Quincy Adams admired Channing's courage, but described the book as an inflammatory, if not incendiary, publication. The standing committee of Channing's church voted to prohibit abolitionists from speaking at the pulpit and disallowed Channing from using the church to host the memorial service for his abolitionist friend, Charles Fallon, who had died on a burning ship overloaded with cotton. With this, Channing withdrew from his 30-year pastorate at the Federal Street Church. Now, as Channing's ministry was ending, his idea of the divine spark left an indelible mark on an emerging movement among Unitarians that became known as Transcendentalism, which was encouraged by practitioners of German idealism. Margaret Fuller, Theodore Parker, and Ralph Waldo Emerson, and others were Unitarian spokespersons arguing that divine revelation came not only from the Bible, but from nature and from within oneself. Transcendentalism opened the door for a more innovative Unitarian theology that challenged the more traditional biblical basis of Unitarian faith. It also demanded engagement in social justice concerns. To understand God in the self, observes historian David Robinson, was to diminish the self and enlarge one's responsibility for moral action. Margaret Fuller, regarded as the most intellectually brilliant woman of her day, published a book, Woman in the 19th Century, in 1845, which was hugely influential on the women's rights movement that followed. Fuller then traveled to Europe as a journalist for the New York Tribune where she chronicled the poverty and working conditions she witnessed and advocated for workers' rights. Theodore Parker worked to protect runaway slaves, hiding them in his house and lending financial support to John Brown in his effort to spark an uprising of armed slaves at Harper's Ferry in Virginia. You may understand that he was part of a group called the Secret Six who did that. Ralph Waldo Emerson gave an address entitled Slavery in 1844 to commemorate the 10th anniversary of British emancipation in the West Indies. He conceded that the research he did for this lecture opened his eyes to the horror of slavery. And the address became a condemnation of slavery in the American South. I am heart sick, he wrote. The stomach rises in disgust and curses slavery. In a later essay on American slavery published in 1855, he blamed, quote, the party of property 
for preventing a political solution to end the system. Speaking of conservatives who supported the Fugitive Slave Act, he charged, they would nail the stars to the sky. They wish their age should be absolutely like the last. In the late 19th century, the rise of further theological broadening brought the social gospel, bringing the gospel to the streets with Unitarian minister, Reverend Francis Greenwood Peabody, supporting the construction of tenement housing for the poor who were drastically underpaid by industrial magnates. By the 1920s, a modern religious response embraced the science of evolution, higher biblical criticism and socialism, partly in reaction to the claims of religious fundamentalism seen in Billy Sunday, Amy Semple McPherson, and the new Ku Klux Klan. Reverend L. Walter Mason of the First Unitarian Church of Pittsburgh advocated in the 1920s for what he called the scientific view of religion, not based on superstition or hard and fast answers, not based on evidence. Mason was aware of the rise of humanism and religion, and in 1926, he preached atheism as a negative term, standing for a certain disbelief. Humanism is a positive term, standing for a definite belief, a belief in man and woman, stressing the necessity of social obligation and religion, he said, any constructive program of world progress is possible only in a deeply grounded belief in humankind, and that is humanism. Having witnessed the catastrophe of World War I and having lost his son Joseph in that war, Mason called for a great Catholicity of spirit. If there is a problem in one part of society, we are all affected by it. Protestants cannot be saved from yellow fever, said Mason, so long as Catholics have the disease. Neither can it be banished from the Christian world so long as it exists among the Buddhists, Mohammedans, Hindus, or the Indian tribes. He determined more and more, we must unite in the common work of the universal welfare. Regarding race in the 20th century, Unitarians John Haynes Holmes and Mary White Ovington participated with W.E.B. Du Bois in the founding of the integrated NAACP in 1909 to mount legal challenges to the Jim Crow laws seen across the country. And in 1943, the Universalist General Convention revised its Declaration of Social Principles stating, we must recognize that Americans of Negro, Indian and Oriental descent are suffering from unjust forms of discrimination. In that same year, Universalist General Superintendent Robert Cummins declared the Universalist Church to be a place where all are welcome, theist and humanist, Unitarian and Trinitarian, colored and colorless. A. Paul Davies at All Souls Church in Washington, D.C. declared in 1953, I shall myself from this time on not knowingly 
eat a meal in any restaurant in the District of Columbia that will not serve meals to Negroes. And he invited his congregation to do the same. Dozens of UUs were involved in the Mississippi Freedom Summer Project of 1964, registering Black Mississippi residents to vote at great personal risk. When Martin Luther King Jr. issued his call for ministers to join him in the march from Selma to Montgomery for voting rights, and after the murder of Unitarian Minister James Reeb in Selma, about 500 UUs, 500 UUs plus 250 UU ministers went to participate in the march. Reverend Gordon Gibson, a good friend of mine, was told, don't go to Selma unless it's more important that you go than that you come back. Those who went knew the risk and reported being transformed by the experience. All right, so in this very brief highlighting of our history, and of course there's a great deal more to say, I see at least two things. First, the connections between our evolving theologies and our ethical engagements in social justice have been inseparable. In the Bible-based Unitarianism of Channing, we set up services for the poor of Boston. In the Transcendentalist Unitarianism of Emerson and Parker, some of us condemned slavery and the fugitive slave law and worked to protect runaway slaves, while Fuller called for the rights of workers and for women. In the modern humanist world of the 1920s and beyond, we worked for equal housing, set up integrated childcare centers, and went to Selma in 1964 to 65 on behalf of voting rights for African-Americans. Now, on the other hand, our choices as liberal religious people, in our choices as liberal religious people, we have not always been of one mind. In America, standing for the cause of abolition in the 1830s to 1840s carried grave risk, and most came to it reluctantly. Consider Channing's congregation, feeding the poor, yet fearful of their new minister's radical stand on abolition. Even Parker, who packed a loaded pistol in his desk to fight off slave catchers, argued for Anglo-Saxon supremacy, subverting Irish and Chinese immigrants, as well as African-Americans, a view common in his time. In 1892, Reverend Charles Eliot St. John of Pittsburgh questioned the priorities of underpaid steelworkers who went on strike in Homestead, Pennsylvania. In the 1920s, some well-meaning Unitarians and Universalists advocated for the popular science of eugenics. And in religious education, the Martin and Judy stories used for years after their introduction in 1939 were situated in completely white middle-class suburban American neighborhoods. A 1959 revision included illustrations of black children, but there were no black characters. Finally, the transformation achieved at Selma in 1965 will less clear 
in what became known as the Black Empowerment Struggle of 1968 to 71. Here we became divided over whether to fund the exclusively Black-led organization, Black Affairs Council, or the integrated group, Black and White Action, in addressing the needs of Black communities across the country. Feelings of hurt and alienation reverberated over that conflict for years after the events in question. So to conclude, innovations in our Unitarian Universalist theology have long called us to a more open, evolving view of divine revelation. And to be clear, all of our past theological approaches that I have talked about here are still available to us. At the same time, our ethical call of conscience asks that we respond to the changing temper of the times in which we live. And here is the point about that. As with our theological diversity, our ethical responses are not and never have been one thing. Today, we are called to bear witness against injustice on multiple fronts as seen in a selectively literal view of the Bible used to deny LGBTQ rights, an impulse for tax cuts that drive the wealth up and amplify an unsustainable economic inequality, a white supremacist ethos that seeks to crush generations of hard-won gains toward racial fairness and understanding, and a misogyny that still presupposes the rights and interests of men over women. Beyond all this is our existential need to turn back global warming and to secure healthcare for everyone with whom we share this planet. The words of our UU hymn today that we're about to sing call us to think deeply about who we are and what we do. Light shine in, illuminate our inward view, help us to see with clarity. May we all open ourselves to clarity of purpose as we each seek inner meaning and commit, in Mason's words, to the common work of the universal welfare in our world. May it be so. Please join me in singing hymn number 83, Winds Be Still.
now move on to joys and sorrows. If you have a bowl of water and stones at home to participate, please feel free to get them now. This practice is a custom in our congregation where one can publicly and openly share a significant and meaningful event that has deeply touched their life. As I read the joys and sorrows, we will listen deeply and lovingly. We are made mindful of the sacredness of the ritual when we cast a stone in the water in the bowl of communal water. It, the ripples it forms symbolize how our lives touch one another. And one final stone for all that is unsaid and felt in our hearts. The reflection I'll read is written by Liz Weber. Spirit of life, help us to be present with all that is our life, both our deepest sorrows and our greatest joys, so that we can truly live engaging fully in our own life and in our community. Spirit of community, help us know how linked we are, how each one of our cares touches us all. Help us ask for support when we are in need and offer our support to others when we are able so that we may rest in the solace of one another's love. Spirit of love and help us to love our neighbor as we love ourselves so that we might fully embody love and resist hatred. Spirit of resistance, help us stick up for what is right, even when we are tired or afraid. 
Help us to dream of the world as it should be and act to bring that world about. Help us find hope each day. Spirit of hope, help us through this day and each day. Help us to be present for all that is our life. For all this we ask, amen and blessed be. those of us who have come here seeking God, may God go with us. For those of us who have come here seeking life, may life return our affection. For those of us who have come here seeking a better way, may that way be found and the courage to take it step by step. Go in peace. Return with love. Ninga Ishichike Nebe Munche Ninga Ishichike Nebe Munche This is the same water that was here when dinosaurs were here. There is no new water. This is the only water we will ever know. This is the same water that my great ancestors drank from and harvested our wild rice upon.
sacred because without water, there is no life. You cannot drink oil. On this land to which we belong, from the Canadian tar sand, one million barrels of oil in the day to come through these sacred lands. On this land to which we belong, with oil thicker than crude, four thousand workers coming our way, got them pandemic pipelines. This moment is that moment where we face that oil. This is the moment where we face line three and say, no, you will not take our water. On this land in which we belong, with pipelines that corrode, when they break, it'll be too late. It'll kill this river road. On this land where we belong, don't let their pipelines through. Thank you. 